We now come to our reading from God's Holy Word. It's on page 1144 in the Pew Bibles, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, page 1144, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the reading from God's holy word. Amen. Hello. Really good to worship with you this evening. Um, just a delight to sing those songs and pray together. Uh, wonderful. Now, um, divisions, arguments, quarrels. Don't worry, this could never happen at our church. Um, we, love our, our, we love our leaders, um, but the thing about quarrels is that they never happen until they do. Um, over Christmas, the church that I grew up in back in Cardiff, they asked me to speak at their prayer meeting. They actually regularly pray for, for us here at Christchurch Banstead. Um, they like to get updates from time to time, so uh, I sort of spoke a few things to give thanks for, a few things to pray for. And the first thing I said um, to be thankful for uh, in our church is the remarkable supernatural unity that we've known, particularly over the last two years. Um, of course, we have all disagreed with something or someone at some point. But, and, and, you know, it's good to raise those differences where they happen. But I'm so thankful that even though disagreements happen, we haven't divided into disagreeing factions over these things. But just because that has been our story, that doesn't mean things will necessarily continue that way. The church in Corinth that um, we're going to be following through over the next few uh, weeks had a really blessed beginning, which you can read about in Acts 18 when you get back home. Um, just to give a brief summary, as Paul always did when he went to a new city, he spoke at the synagogue and he did that time and time and time again. And yet, 
the people there abused him and rejected Christ. So what's Paul going to do? Well, he goes literally next door and starts a church there. And, um, and many, many people become Christians, actually including the leader of the synagogue. I like to think that one day the synagogue leader just happened to leave his windows open and overheard what Paul was saying next door. And uh, he and his family became Christians. Wonderful. But there was still a lot of opposition. But God spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And that proved to be the case. Um, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half and many people came to Christ. Later, once Paul had gone, they also enjoyed the really powerful preaching of a guy called Apollos, um, who's described in Acts 18 as a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures who spoke with great fervor. And still later, it's possible that these believers in Corinth had had a visit from Peter and his wife. Um, And, you know, it's really a privileged beginning, that, isn't it? You've had Paul, you've had Apollos, you've potentially had Peter as well. But look what happened down the line. 1 Corinthians, it'd be good if you had it open. It'd be even better if I had it open. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, verses 11 and 12. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Quarrels and divisions, all based on favorite personalities, favorite leaders, If it happened to a church with such a blessed beginning, then this could also happen here too. So let's hear this instruction really, really carefully. I think um, we can sum up the message of these verses in one sentence, which is going to come up on the screen. Be perfectly united because Christ is not divided and only one name matters. I think that sums up what Paul is saying in these verses. And we're going to look at... um, that sentence in three bits. So let's highlight the first one. Be perfectly united. I'm going to read verse 10. And as I do, I'd like you to think about what Paul is asking of these believers in Corinth and what he's asking of us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, Paul's not shy about the fact that he has the authority of an apostle. But notice the tone of his instruction here. He doesn't place himself above his readers and listeners. He speaks as a sibling to his brother's and sisters. And and he calls on the name of our Lord Jesus. Paul isn't lording it over these believers. He's appealing to the authority of Jesus, who is Lord of both speaker and reader or listener. And he's appealing to perfect unity. And it comes in three phrases, which we'll look at now. First, 
agree with one another in what you say. Now, I think I'm right in saying that most of us at some point in our lives will have had the experience of a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon come knocking at the door. And um, as an aside, uh, this appeal to unity here, it's, a, it's an appeal to unity within God's family. People who belong to cults who don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. People who belong to cults that don't believe in a gospel of grace. They, they don't fit into that category of God's family. So um, we're not being commanded to be unified with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Um, anyway, they knock at the door and uh, I'm very excited to chat. Um, they don't know what's coming. <laughs> um, they only have a knock at my door once. Um, it's a very friendly chat though. Um, but it doesn't seem quite like a real conversation. They've been trained to ask the same questions to everybody, and they've been trained to respond in exactly the same scripted answers. It's very much like speaking to um, someone over the telephone that has all the words in front of them. It's not real. Yes, they're all saying the same thing, but it's not real. And this sort of thing isn't what Paul is aiming for when he says, agree with one another in what you say. God has created all of us beautifully different. Different in personality, different in culture, different in life experience, different in language. So we should speak differently. To agree with one another in what we say means we speak in harmony means we speak in harmony, not all shouting over one another like a uh, concert of carcophonous cats howling their own tune, uh, not dull unison where um, everyone is chanting like monks, but beautiful harmony, different instruments, different parts, all coming together in one Christ-focused piece of music. That's what it is to agree in what we say. Second phrase here, no divisions among you. We've already read in uh, verse 11 and 12, haven't we? We found out there are quarrels between different factions. They were allying themselves to different personalities, different leaders. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter, and Christ. Um, that last one is kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, but that group is also kind of seen as part of the problem. It's obviously good to describe yourself as a follower of Christ. But if you were to say, I follow Christ and I don't follow apostles like Paul and Peter, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Um, that would be an unbiblical distinction. And it seems like um, this group was doing that. None of these people were dividing over serious theological differences. That sort of division can sometimes be necessary and good, especially where the gospel is at stake. Rather, they were creating personality cults in city life at that time. There was a culture of patronage. And this is where lower status people would give their allegiance and loyalty to a powerful individual. And the theory was that the, the powerful individual would gain political power and influence. And um, very much in theory rather than in practice, the lower status people would benefit from a kind of wealthy, powerful benefactor. Um, that was the culture 
around um, at that time. But we should be careful as well not to absorb our culture's obsession with powerful personalities. It seems that um, kind of in thing uh, for a football club to be complete, they need to have this charismatic manager. Um, The world of celebrity obviously hasn't gone away and there's a growing trend for people to look out for and pursue mentors and coaches in their life and work. But church is different and church must be different. Pastors and leaders are not patrons to be put on a pedestal and venerated. That's just not how it works. Evangelical teachers and authors are not top trump cards to be uh, battled against one another. There should be no such divisions among us. And um, the third phrase uh, in this verse uh, of this appeal to perfect unity. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. This takes our unity to another level beyond just what we say. This is about being on the same page in our decision making, uh, our purpose, our judgments. Again, it's not about eliminating any and all differences of opinion. We're not to be clones. Rather, our default position is not to be that of the critic that always feels like, oh, it's, it's my job to throw in the opposite point of view. Uh, I think we all have met people like that, and it's really, really draining. It's about being on the same page in our purpose, decision-making, and judgments. And one of the ways that CCB tries to do this is with our mission statement, go, win, grow. We all want to be on the same page with the same uh, mission, going, um, winning disciples, and growing them as well. And over Christmas, it was such a delight to see this in action. It's a busy time for everyone, um, and there's lots of fear going around, obviously. So gathering to pray or gathering to serve, it, it was a sacrifice. And yet time and time again, people, you, came out to go, win, grow. You delivered leaflets, you welcomed newcomers, you set up gazebos, and um, so many other things like that. I must say, I particularly enjoyed seeing so many new people serving at the High Street Christmas event. Um, It was wonderful, in the dark and the cold, standing shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters to make Christ known. That is perfect unity in action. That's what we're talking about here. But we've still got room to grow. And just because we've started well, that doesn't mean things will continue that way. Divisions can always creep in. So let's keep going in our sentence and find two motivations for perfect unity. Firstly, be perfectly united because Christ is not divided. At the start of verse 13, there's a very interesting question, isn't there? It's only a short one, but it's really quite important. Is Christ divided? Do you think the answer is yes or no? I wonder. Um, Well, it should be no. Christ is not divided. 
This might seem like an odd sort of a thing to say, uh, but it's like an appetizer here at the start of the letter of a bigger theme that's going to be very important later on. Uh, Being part of the church means being part of Jesus Christ. Let me string together and paraphrase a few verses um, through the chapters that are going to follow. The church has been called into fellowship with Jesus. The church is in Christ Jesus. We are united with the Lord. We participate in his body and his blood. Or as a good summary from chapter 12, verse 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Did you get that? Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Being part of the church means being part of Jesus. That's the theme behind the question, but why introduce this appetizer here? It's a deliberate shock tactic, really, And there's no way I would dare to say this if it wasn't here in Scripture. But dividing into different factions is an attempt to chop up and dismember Jesus himself. That is is terrible. That is shocking, isn't it? If we are his body... Think about it, how painful it must be for our saviour when we pull apart from one another. Is Christ divided? No. But you're trying your best to do so. This is our first motivation to be perfectly united. Um, Taken positively, let's pursue unity so that we can enjoy the heavenly reality that we are part of Christ's body. It's beautiful belonging. It's a deeper bond than friendship. It's a more longer lasting bond than marriage. Even if there are people that you wouldn't naturally get on with, even if there are people that you would naturally clash with, you can be united because you are both united to Christ. And when we do taste that sort of shoulder-to-shoulder unity where we serve alongside our brothers and sisters, where we're all sacrificing together, where we're all on mission together. It is beautiful. It is really lovely to be a part of. It feels so right. And taken as a warning. Let's pursue unity because pulling apart causes our saviour pain. Were his sufferings on the cross not enough? Let's log that thought to the back of our minds for the next time temptation comes. Be perfectly united because Christ is not divided. And, to move on to the last part of our sentence, and only one name matters. This is our second motivation to pursue perfect unity. Have a look down at your Bibles. How many names are there in these verses? Um, Take a few seconds, try and count them. How many did you get? 
Six. Any any other guesses? We had six. Yeah, there's there's a few debatable how many times you count the repeats. Um, could be six. Could be seven. Um, Chloe, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Crispus, Gaius, Stephanus. Oh, by the way, Crispus is the synagogue leader that I mentioned at the start who was converted from Acts 18. And in one sense, all of these names do matter. In one sense, all these names really do matter. Christians, in the Lamb's Book of Life, there is an entry with your name written. That is special. Your name matters to God. Non-Christians, your name matters to God too. Just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, so he weeps over you, longing that you personally would come to him. Your name matters. But as I read verses 13 to 17, notice how Paul plays down the significance of his own name and by extension, any other name as well. Notice how he plays down the importance of his own name. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If you knew that there was a group of people in the church who were comparing you and judging you compared to others in the church, how would you respond? Or if someone came to your house for dinner and then subsequently you found out that they'd been talking about your cooking and saying how it didn't compare to certain other individuals cooking in the church, how would you respond? I think most of us would feel a little bit defensive. Most of us would want to justify ourselves. But in a similar situation, Paul does exactly the opposite. He points out that his name doesn't really matter at all. He points out that he isn't their saviour. He wasn't crucified for them. They weren't baptised in his name. And actually, he's glad that he barely baptised any of them because the very idea that some of them would say, I was baptised in the name of Paul, is just revolting to him. Others could have the joy of baptising people, perhaps Silas and Timothy who were with him in Corinth. Because Paul's name, and all the other names, ultimately don't matter. All Paul was interested in was preaching the gospel. And he even says he wasn't doing that particularly impressively with Corinthian uh, wisdom and eloquence. The only name that really counts, the only name worth boasting about, the only name worth giving your absolute everything to serve every day of your life is in verse 10. In the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the point of lifting up the big names in Christianity? What is the point? What is the point of putting your pastors on a pedestal and venerating them? Jesus is the only name that matters. And in wider culture as well. What is the point, ultimately, of following any big name? 
Um, have you got your favourite YouTuber, your favourite actor, or your favourite sports person? My wife says that I'm way too obsessed with the basketball player LeBron James. Ultimately, what are we doing when we're following those people? What have they done for us? Absolutely nothing. What has Jesus done for us? The only big name that matters. Jesus offers you life forever for free. Jesus hung on a cross for the wrong that you have done. Jesus offers you belonging and freedom and forgiveness and victory and the very presence of God. So come and follow the only name that matters. Be perfectly united because Christ is not divided and only one name matters. Sometimes um, situations occur where a division has been allowed to fester for a long time. And it feels like, oh, we should just kind of leave it and there's nothing we could ever do about it. And um, these verses surely don't apply to that one. I think they do. Um, these divisions were already in place. These divisions had already happened. But Paul's command is about restoration. Paul's command is about coming back together and building those ties that were once broken. And it seems like a big thing when we're in one of those situations. But small act of kindness by small act of kindness, small smile by small smile, small word, uh, positive word by positive word, those ties get brought back together because the reality is we are united in Christ. Whether that division is between you and uh, someone who goes to another church or whether it's someone in this church as well, you are united in Christ and by prayer, uh, by the power of God's spirit, those bonds can be restored. We haven't said much about verse 17. That's mostly because it's setting up our next two sermons and uh, what are two sermons we've got to look forward to. Why is it that Paul didn't preach with wisdom and eloquence? Well, we're going to find out in the next two weeks. But for now, let's pray. Almighty God's we thank you so much for the privilege of belonging to Christ. Thank you that we are on his team if we have put our trust in him. Thank you that he offers us far more than any other big name or any other pastor or teacher could offer. We pray that you would help us to submit our allegiance to him and him alone. And we pray that you would guard us, guard our church from division. And where, um, where divisions exist, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do as much as possible in your power to bring that division together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.